Their courage will astound you. Their stories will move you. Their faith will inspire you. Welcome to Great Stories About Great Saints on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome to the Kale Clark Show on November the 1st, 2023. It's All Saints Day, and you know what that means. All day long on Relevant Radio today, it's great stories about great saints. And I've got a great guest, a fantastic guest to join me today to talk about one of your favorite saints, no doubt, and mine too, and certainly his. My guest today is a great friend of the program. He's the Archbishop Emeritus of Toronto, Cardinal Thomas Collins. Your Eminence, thank you so much for taking the time to come back again on the Kale Clark Show for All Saints Day. It's such a momentous day, and we're going to talk for a few minutes about one of your favorite saints, St. Thomas More. But before we do that, before we do that, I have to ask you about this. What's it been like for you since you, I'm sure you're quite busy still, but you are officially retired. Uh, <laughs> I as am our, retired, yes. Yeah, as our listeners <laughs> know. What I retire for, from is the responsibility for the Archdiocese of Toronto. And I'm very, very glad we have a wonderful new Archbishop, Archbishop uh, Leo. And so uh, I'm just delighted uh, that he is the new Archbishop. And I am, um, I moved to uh, one, one part of our seminary called Sarah House. Hmm. So I'm moving into my apartment here and uh, trying to figure out what to do with all the books I'm, I need to sort and unpack. <laughs> uh, but most of my time uh, uh, is spent, uh, well, in terms of events and things like that, I've been going to different places to give retreats for priests and bishops. So I've wow. already done uh, three of those. Uh, one brief day on the Psalms for the priests of St. John and of uh, Cornerbrook. Basic Cornerbrook, basically, and then St. John. And also for the priests of Edmund and the priests of Ottawa Cornwall, I've done uh, retreats. And after Christmas, I have several more coming up for various groups. So that'll be uh, my main mission this year, I think, and maybe the years to come. So I'm doing a lot of different things, just trying to settle in. No, absolutely. And you're, you're such a great biblical scholar. And, and moving your books, I can identify when I moved, uh, my, moving my library was the worst thing. And I'm sure you've got a ton of great books. And you, you are also the author of one of the great lines I've ever heard. You like to say, and this, I always remember this, you say that thoughts are like coins in your pocket, books are like money in the bank. I love that. Well, yeah, there we are. <laughs> books are certainly important. Ever since I was a little boy, I have always... I've read a lot. I've been read, read, read. I was a little bookworm when I was a little kid. And I have been all my life. I'm 76 now. So, so, and it has been a great joy in my life. Uh, in fact, one of the uh, talks I give uh, to the on these retreats is oh, mm-hmm. first of all lectio divina about divine mm-hmm. reading, which is about how to read the Bible in a prayerful way, but also it just it's lectio and lectio divina, like reading and divine reading, mm. and just pointing out that one of the ways we can find. Uh, uh, strength on our journey through this valley of tears is is reading in itself, not only the Bible but other things as well. It's a great source of encouragement, and um, I think one of my great heroes, a dear friend of Thomas More, Saint John Fisher, hmm. uh, he had a, a quite a large library. I, I feel I don't feel so guilty having a lot of books since I looked at Saint John Fisher and John <laughs> Henry Newman, who are the, these great people that I maybe feel a little less guilty. But he he did a lot of reading and. Uh, I think reading does reading of the sacred scriptures, of course, draws us closer to the Lord. But and not reading simply to conquer them or master them or mm. devour them, but but rather to encounter the Lord in them. But uh, but also uh, other things, history, uh, biographies, uh, they help. Uh, I think help us gain some understanding of the issues in the world and some perspective as well. Because we have, uh, you know, horrible things going on in this world right now. Mm-hmm. But then again, what would it have been like uh, uh, in the past? Like I just, just a second ago, I put down the book, a thing by a man called Boethius, called The Constellation mm-hmm. of Philosophy. And he, he only lived to be, I think, 42 or 3. He was he was born around 40, 480 and killed around 520-ish by the emperor, the Ostrogoth Emperor Theodoric. Uh, and he wrote a beautiful book, you know, and he, he was killed, sort of like Thomas More. Uh, he was executed by an, an unjust king. Um, and uh, But he, he found, I think, a lot of strength. In his case, in philosophy, mm. uh, also he was a Christian too, but but also just in the wisdom of, of Plato and Aristotle. I think we need to look to that. We need to look to the wisdom we can find in history 
and in philosophy, and also occurs fundamentally in the sacred scriptures. Absolutely. My guest today on The K.O. Clark Show is Cardinal Thomas Collins. And Cardinal Collins, let's talk about somebody who was a key figure in history, certainly in the history of the Church, St. Thomas More. And I know he's a personal hero of yours, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on to talk about him is because I've heard you speak so eloquently and passionately about him in the past. Maybe we should go back and just sketch for our listeners, what is the historical context of his life? He was 42 years old. When Luther, now of course uh, today well, on all, go, go ahead. Older than that, but not too much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was. Uh, he was. Uh, he grew up at the time of the early 1500s. He was born in the late 1400s and grew up in the and grew up in the uh, first part of the 1500s in England. Uh, he was from London and he grew up there, and he uh, was uh, became a lawyer. He had thought of possibly becoming a priest. In fact, he, I think he had thought of becoming a, a monk of the, the greatest of all the orders in many ways, the most uh, um, profound, the Carthusians. Um, they, uh, they live a life of hmm. great strictness, and they have a place called, they have a place called Charter Houses in English, the Carthusian place. And he lived at one. He lived as a kind of a boarding student there when he was studying law. So with the holy monks of the, of the Charter House, uh, he he prayed and he he uh, lived with them, lived a life of prayer while he was a law student. But he decided it wasn't his vocation. His vocation mm-hmm. was to be married, and it wasn't to be a monk. Although he had a great love for them. In fact, the the, the Carthusians were among the first to be massacred, martyred uh, by Henry VIII later on, a very just a little bit before when Thomas was in the dungeon in the Tower of London. He could look out and see. The Holy Carthusian monks, probably many of whom were had been his spiritual fathers, uh, being led to their own execution because mm-hmm. they would not give in to the to the dictator king, uh, because uh, they they were deep in prayer, but also they were very learned men. This is another thing that the the, the groups in England that resisted this this tyrant Henry VIII when he mm-hmm. decided because of his own ego that he would uh, get rid of his faithful queen, Catherine of Aragon, in the late 1520s and early 1530s because he was uh, wanted to marry his mistress, uh, mm-hmm. Anne Boleyn. Uh, and of course, later after that, he was marrying and beheading and uh, divorcing mm-hmm. and everything. Um, <laughs> there were several, I forget, six wives or seven wives, whatever. But wow. he really went wrong. But the ones who resisted most were not only the holy monks and priests and lay people, but also the learned ones. I always think that's sort of interesting. So there was another group called the Bridgetine uh, monks or fathers uh, who were, they resisted Henry, and the, the Carthusians did too. They they have a wonderful, wonderful motto, stat crux dum volvitor orbis, the cross stands firm while the world spins. Mm. And they have, ever since St. Bruno founded them early in the second millennium, um, they have been faithful. And uh, they always say they're the one order that's never been reformed because it's never needed to. And so that's the order of <laughs> monks, very austere, that Thomas More was associated with as a young, uh, you might call university student, uh, or as a law student. Mm-hmm. But then he went on, and he was very, very good, very smart, very wise, and uh, a great leader. And so he, he married, and... Um, was a, a very good father, uh, especially Margaret, his daughter, was yeah. one. In those days, women were not uh, educated. That's uh, right. It was not for you know they were very much uh, uh, sort of neglected. But uh, he gave Margaret uh, a superb education. It, they sort of make fun of that, or they kind of joke about it in the movie A Man for All Seasons. Where Henry VIII, the kind of this pompous uh, macho kind of figure, <laughs> is saying "Sunne Margarita," and all he's trying to see whether she can. She's heard she she speaks Latin, and she just goes. <laughs> rrr, rrr, rrr. She, she speaks fluent Latin, a lot better Latin than the pompous king. He, so <laughs> he, he sort of it kind of shuts them down. It's interesting, you know that. Uh, but anyway, just a point that the the ones who saw through Henry VIII. Uh, were the holy people, and they had the courage to do it, to speak up, and also learned people who could mm-hmm. kind of cut to pieces his 
phony argumentation, you know, and say, wait, that's not right. Um, and that's why uh, the, the Man for All Seasons is a wonderful, wonderful movie. It gives uh, a great view of that time. You're going to get a historic sense of the time of, Hen- of Henry VIII and Thomas More. But on one point, and the most important point of all, it's wrong. It's because wrong. the most important point of all that's always talked about with about Thomas More is conscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died because of his conscience. He would not sign the oath which would declare the king basically to be the head of the church, essentially. Uh, <laughs> we're near Reformation Sunday, but anyway, uh, he would <laughs> refuse. He refused to do that, and. Uh, and so, and because he could not, in good conscience, do it, he did the thing that was right. And in the movie, in the movie and the play by Robert Bolt, who was an atheist basically, but he was he he admired this conscience of Thomas More. And at one point, Thomas is said to say, which he never would have said, when Norfolk, the Duke, says, uh, "Why don't you just sign the oath like all the rest of us?" And he says, "I I do not wish to do so, or more that I cannot do that. Like it's my hmm. ego, my my inner." fortress of my autonomous self will not give in and sign the oath. That is the precise attitude of Henry VIII, not of Thomas More. Mm, exactly. Because when Thomas More wrote to his daughter, in, uh, he wrote some wonderful letters from the Tower of London, he made it, he explained why, why he wasn't doing anything, what his conscience meant. It wasn't because his dear friend John Fisher who is my really many, even more of a hero of mine than, than Thomas More. He was the Bishop of Rochester, who mm-hmm. was faithful to the only bishop who didn't cave. It wasn't because he had not signed the oath, or because, it certainly wasn't because of his ego. I, Thomas More, will not sign the oath. No, it was because he had studied the matter. And conscience means with knowledge. It's not just what you feel like. It is, he had thought it through, and he could see flying on the two wings as Pope John Paul II of mm. faith and reason, he could see that the, that the king was wrong to do this. He wasn't the head of the church. He had no right to, to be so uh, cruel to his beloved, uh, dear and faithful wife, uh, Catherine. And so his conscience was based upon thinking it through in the light of faith, faith and reason. It wasn't just my, you know, I, my conscience says this or that. So it's unfortunate because the movie is spectacular, but, they, but the the writer on that one most important point got it backwards, and he gave he has Henry he has Thomas More giving Henry VIII's view of conscience, which is basically my conscience says I can get rid of my wife and I can because I want to do it, and that is just no 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 no. It's also not the view of John Henry Newman, uh, who is a great 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 uh, wonderful saint who wrote the most recent, modern, great things on conscience. Mm-hmm. And often people say, you know, as, as Newman said, conscience must be supreme. Well, he certainly did. He said it's the aboriginal vicar of Christ deep within us. But it isn't so that you think about stuff a bit and then you do what you want. It's you follow the will of God according to faith and reason. Anyway, it's, it's a big issue these days, especially in the Catholic Church. Oh, there, because no... people sometimes say, well, just follow your conscience. Just do what, think about, think, 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 think. Okay, pray, pray, pray. Okay, now I'll do what I want. <laughs> and uh, I find that to be uh, utterly foolish and just not, doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any anyway, sense. I'm doing a little rant now on, no, on contemporary well, stuff of the Catholic Church. <laughs> well, you're making, you're making a ton of sense. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. My guest is His Eminence Cardinal Thomas Collins. It's very interesting when you talk about uh, the conscience of More, he could not sign the oath of supremacy, declaring Henry VIII to be the head of the church in England. Of course, he would not do that. And, and it's interesting because today we're, we're talking here on November the 1st, All Saints Day. Yesterday, of course, Halloween, it's also the day that is celebrated by Protestants as Martin Luther making that break from the Catholic Church. Yeah, and yeah. so it's very ironic that we're talking about this today, or perhaps providential. And the interesting thing about this, too, is that before Henry defected, after Luther initially made his move, and, and I think probably Thomas More, if he didn't write it himself, he certainly had a huge hand in it. Henry oh, had yeah, written... the defense of the seven sacraments. Yeah. yeah, talk to us about this. Oh, yeah, no, it, Martin Luther, of course, has the exact opposite view to Thomas More. His famous thing is, here I stand, mm. I can do no other. 
he was working from I. And I always joke about Henry VIII, so was he. That's why his, his number is Henry the V I, I, I. <laughs> for that matter, Edward VIII, the guy Love who it. put his own views above those of the, uh, of the duty. And you ever see the movie, The King's Speech, you know, this kind of playboy yeah. prince, uh, uh, he goes off with Wallace Simpson. Mm-hmm. And in his famous uh, farewell, where everyone says, oh, he, thought he gave up the throne for the woman he loved. But if you listen to the actual recording of what he said, he said, I cannot f- fulfill my duty as king as I would wish to do so without mm-hmm. the help and support of the woman I love. So that whole idea is, I think, disastrous. It turns us into little islands of, of self. And, it, and it's, I think it is really not a good move. I think it's out of touch with the whole most fundamental reality, which is the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Blessed Trinity, of which we are made in the image of likeness. So I think it's it's not good. So he wrote that. Uh, I mean, he said he didn't write that. He, I mean, he, he, gave, he was a sort of a ghostwriter for the king. The king, however, <laughs> was no uh, slouch when it came to theology. It's quite likely that Thomas said, no, the king wrote that book. I helped them out in a few points. That may well have been pretty true because hmm. Henry was a very was a pretty learned guy. He hmm. did a lot of reading and stuff. He's made to look a goofy in the movie because he doesn't speak Latin as well as uh, as uh, the daughter of uh, Thomas yeah, Moore. But actually, he is. Uh, you know, he's uh, he was well, goofy. Is not what I think he really was. He was he was uh, evil, <laughs> which is worse than goofy. But uh, anyway, wow. uh, but but so he uh, Thomas Moore. Uh, probably helped him with that. And for his defense of the seven sacraments, uh, Henry VIII was given the title of Defender of the Faith by the Pope. I think it's a wise move for popes not to give people titles till they're safely dead. Because <laughs> you, still, you still, the kings, the kings of England, the kings, they still use the term Defender of the Faith, but it's, they switch faith. I mean, he switched, <laughs> having said he would defend the faith, oh, um, I guess that Henry thought, well, I think I'll have one of my own. So he kind of made himself into, I mean, why accept an honor from the Pope when you can become your own Pope? So he thinks, I think I'll be the, no, it's not good not being King of England, I'm going to be Pope as well. So he, he created his own church. And in a sense, when he did that through the, uh, the act, uh, you know, by which he set it up mm-hmm. and became the head of the church, you could say the church, comma, in England, mm-hmm. became the church of England. And there is an immense difference between the in and the of. And I think it is, I don't think it was a good move, obviously. I don't think it's a good move. (laughs) The one who actually wrote even more brilliantly than Thomas More, and actually is a bit more my favorite saint than even Thomas More, is a much less popular saint, and that's St. John Fisher. Mm -hmm. And John Fisher was the bishop of the little town of Rochester, the smallest diocese in England. He was a wonderful, brilliant man and a man of absolute integrity. He was so he was a bishop. I feel maybe, although I wanted to be a lawyer, and I always looked at Thomas More as a hero that way, I've ended up as a bishop. So maybe <laughs> John Fisher's more my, and a cardinal, and he's, he was made a cardinal by the Pope mm, in a, an effort wow. to save his life, but just got, made Henry angry, and he beheaded him. So wow. John Fisher is a, is a man of extraordinary honor, and uh, and he really gave his life not only for the Pope, as did also did uh, Thomas More, but also for marriage, because right. uh, Catherine, the faithful wife of Henry, was being really treated terribly, and the bishop John Fisher stood up and and actually went to court for Catherine to to defend the wife unbelievable. of Henry VIII. Yeah, it's it's so almost for that, as- he was beheaded. I mean, the parallels with John the Baptist are are unmistakable. The friend of the bridegroom, if you will, defending marriage. Yes, exactly. And here we have, in both the case of John the Baptist and of of John Fisher, people committed to basically celibacy defending marriage. That's right. uh, As the Church still does. Uh, And uh, John John Fisher also wrote a... When Martin Luther did some, made some really not very good things about the priesthood. Um, John Fisher wrote, a, a, a refuted and wrote, argued against Luther, and it said very uh, interestingly that, uh, well, so did, like, Thomas More wrote against Luther, too, in a kind of more mm-hmm. fiery style. And uh, Luther replied, people had replied to, to, to More, but nobody replied, answered John Fisher, because his arguments could not be answered. 
They were so powerful. The day he was to be beheaded uh, by the, the king, and they woke him up around five in the morning or so, and said, Bishop Fisher, you are to be beheaded today. And he said, when? Uh, at 10 o'clock. What time is it now? About five o'clock. Oh, well, wake me up in time. And he rolled over. <laughs> and, and people who saw him said he went back to sleep. Wow. Amazing. Like, this is a guy with a conscience. <laughs> They're talking with a clear conscience. Yeah, tell me about uh, it. He was wow. a great man. But he, and, he and, and Thomas More were great, great friends. A- absolutely. And, but, but Thomas More is more popular because he's more witty. He was sort of a, a cracking jokes well, and stuff, whereas John Fisher was more austere. Well, that, that's actually a good jumping off point, Cardinal Collins, because I, I did want to ask you about Thomas More, both as a friend, because he's a great model of friendship, and also his, his witticisms. He, Thomas More is humorist. He's one of the greatest wits of all time, really. Oh, yeah, that's true. In fact, there's a very good book. Uh, well, somebody in his time wrote about him. He was born for friendship. And that's the mm. title of a book by, I forget who, but the thing, a biography of him called Born for Friendship. He had many friends. He had, obviously, his dear friend John Fisher, the, the Holy Bishop, but also Erasmus, the uh, humanist, and like in a day, not what humanism means now, which was the atheist. It was more a very, he was a very faithful Catholic humanist, um, but very much involved in learning and things like that. He had friends in the aristocracy. He had friends among the rich and the poor. Uh, he was a very, he, he led a joyful life in his family home at Chelsea. And you get a bit of sense of that in the movie, A Man for All Seasons. But he was really, you know, he did different things. When he was said to have, when he, when he was going up, he had a little trouble getting up to the scaffold. We're going to chop his head off. <laughs> and he said, well, can you help me up uh, on the way up? On the way down, I'll take care of myself. <laughs> and then as he put his, he put his head on the block. He moved his beard out of the way. He said, I better move this. Out. It, it didn't uh, commit any treason. And he said, you better watch out. I got a very short neck. And so he was doing this kind of stuff. And they didn't know what to make of it because he uh, he was just, uh, uh, he, like he, had a, he and John Fisher too, unlike the others, um, their heart mm-hmm. was at peace because he spent every Friday in deep prayer, whole, the whole day in his little chapel he built in his, his place at uh, Chelsea. And he, he was meditating upon the reality of, of life and of death. And so he said that when he threw him in the dungeon, in which they did, they threw him and they took away even his books. Like he was a man who loves his books. They took them away just to punish him. Yeah. But, uh, but he said, you know, I'm as close to heaven here as I am in my home. So, uh, you know, there's no great difference. <laughs> That's so, you know, like, uh, like the other, another great saint, uh, blessed of the, 20th century, Clemens von Gallen, the Bishop of Munster in the time of Hitler, you know, he and and, and Tom Fisher, they, they could not be bullied and they could not be bribed because they were at peace with God. And that yeah. could be said of any of us. We're not famous like them, but I mean, it's good to be in a position where we know what's really important. Spend time every day in prayer, be in touch with the Lord and think clearly about what God wills. I think that Cardinal Collins, you're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. My guest is Cardinal Thomas Collins. That's a great jumping off point in these last few minutes. We only have a couple of moments left. What What would you think, if someone were to ask you, what is the great lesson of Thomas More for our time? What would you say? Well, I think uh, I think the key, like there are a lot of beautiful things about him, but I think the thing is he thought deeply and he, he flew to God on the wings of faith and reason. And uh, that's what we need to do as well. That's the image from the John Paul II uses. We, we need to think clearly. Uh, natural thinking, natural reason is very good, but also see illuminated by the, the, the life of faith. So we need to reason carefully, as he did. Like he thought it through. And even in conscience, it's faith and reason. So we need to do that. We need to cut through some of the uh, just things in our society. I mean, you can't make it up. You just can't make it That's up. That's so You know, there's a point where like, Hans Christian Andersen has, you know, the emperor's marching along with no clothes on and everything because some con men have pretended they're tailors and, you know, the whole story of them, the emperor's no clothes. And everyone else is saying, oh, what a beautiful sort of outfit he has because they're all <laughs> afraid of public opinion. But a little child says the emperor has no clothes. And so I think we somebody like some of the things they're taken as you have to say this stuff you have to believe it or you are out of a job. I mean stuff that is against reason against common sense. We can use our minds to change the very fundamentals of who we are as men and women and stuff like that. 
It's like we're going to willing it so makes it so. Well, that just doesn't happen. It's not. It, it's not not anything so much theological, although it is there somewhere than the Bible. It just doesn't make sense. And yet, if you say something very sensible and just obvious that any kid should know, you can really be facing trouble in your life. So Thomas More could cut through all that stuff, could see it. He could say, no, look, what is real? What is not real? And I think that maybe is the biggest thing of all. We live in a world of illusion, in a, in a house of mirrors, smoke and mirrors. We have to be able to see what is real and what is not. He could see what was real. And that led him through the terrible problems he faced in his world, and we have to as well. That is a beautiful way to end our discussion, Cardinal Collins, on St. Thomas More. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Kale Clark Show. But before we go, can you give your blessing to our listeners over the airwaves? Most certainly may the Lord bless all who are participating with us here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Your Eminence, thank you so much for being here with us today on All Saints Day. God bless you, and all of our listeners will be praying for you in your ministry as you continue on with priest retreats and everything else you've got going, moving your books, and uh, we thank you so much and hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Kale. It's great to be on your program. Absolutely. That was Cardinal Thomas Collins. We'll be right back to talk about another great saint of the English Protestant Revolution, St. Edmund Campion, who defended the Catholic faith and paid for it with his life. We'll be right back on The Kale Clark Show. All Saints Day means all saints all day. Incredible journeys of faith, heroic holiness. Welcome back to great stories about great saints on Relevant Radio. And the Relevant Radio app. And welcome back to The Kale Clark Show. Thank you very much to Cardinal Thomas Collins for joining me in the first half hour of the program talking about St. Thomas More, and he couldn't resist throwing some stuff in there about St. John Fisher as well. There's just so many great saints to choose from here on All Saints Day. And as I said just before the break, I'm going to be talking to you right now about a saint that maybe you don't know too much about, but you should, St. Edmund Campion. He was really a secret agent for Christ. And speaking of secret agents, you know I'm a huge fan of the James Bond films. And in the movie Skyfall, Bond, who's played by Daniel Craig, he has to go back to his ancestral home in Scotland called Skyfall. We find out in this film that James Bond, the Bond family, is actually Catholic. Because in this ancient home, and talking about the uh, the times of Elizabethan England uh, after the Protestant Revolution in the 16th century, a lot of British Catholics who remained faithful to Rome, they would hide priests in their houses and they would have secret masses, clandestine masses for the recusant Catholics, as they were known. And very often there would be these priest holes in these houses in which they would hide the priest from the authorities and the Bond family home had a priest hole. How about that? And that makes sense because the family crest of James Bond is the world is not enough. And all the saints can really say that. That is true. Now, of course, James Bond, a fictional character, although although I must say I did come across once a St. James Bond Anglican church. I couldn't believe it. I don't know who that is, but uh, uh, let's talk about a real saint, St. Edmund Campion. But again, he was also a secret agent for Christ, another martyr, just like St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher. Edmund Campion was born on January the 24th, 19, sorry, not, not in the 20th century, 1540. And his dad, speaking of books, you heard Cardinal Collins talking about his love of books and moving his books. Edmund Campion's dad was a London bookseller near St. Paul's Cathedral. And of course, growing up around books and learning, Edmund just really took to it as a child. He became an absolute standout student, and when he was 13 years old, the Catholic Queen Mary I came to make a visit to his city, to London, and he was actually chosen from among his fellow students to give sort of a welcome speech to her. It wasn't the last time that he would address a Queen of England. And of course, Edmund Campion went on to Oxford University, where he became a legendary scholar. Uh, Avelina Balestri wrote a great piece about uh, the life of Campion for Catholic Insight magazine. A magazine I used to write for 
uh, some years ago as well. I want to share some of the things about his life uh, that she wrote about, but I also want to recommend to you, if you want a, a book about Edmund Campion, uh, the one I would recommend is by Evelyn Waugh, or Evelyn Waugh, and uh, of course he also wrote Brideshead Revisited, and in 1935, he uh, put out a book called Edmund Campion, A Life, but it was republished in 2005 by Ignatius Press. It, it's a beautiful, beautiful book, really well done, very inspiring on the life and death of St. Edmund Campion. So in 1560, uh, he received his Bachelor of Arts degree, and there was a new Protestant queen uh, of England, Queen Elizabeth I, and he actually took at that time St. Edmund Campion. He, unlike St. Thomas More, at this point he took the oath of supremacy, acknowledging Queen Elizabeth as the head of the church in England. He was raised kind of nominally Catholic, Catholic in name only, a Sino, if you will. And he was sympathetic towards the Catholic cause, but at this point in his life, St. Edmund Campion uh, was not that saintly in this sense. He would go along to get along, and he knew that he had a really bright future. He was doing really well in school. He was a great scholar, and he just did not want to abandon all the worldly opportunities that he had at this point. He went on to take a master's degree in 1564 in Oxford, and he was absolutely a Renaissance man. He was... In fact, he, he kind of even inspired kind of a, a, a quasi-cult of, of groupies that would follow him all over the campus, and they would dress like he dressed, talk like he talked, a gesture as he would gesture, and, and he was just super, super popular. But to his credit, he didn't really want the adulation. He encouraged his fellow students to do really, really well. And, and keep up their studies. And in fact, um, th this group of groupies, uh, as they were known, they were called the Campionists because they followed Edmund Campion around. And he wrote to them and he said, look, proceed with the same pains and toil. In other words, keep working. Bury yourself in your books, complete your course, keep your mind on the stretch. Now keep your eye on the prize. Strive for the prizes which you deserve. Only persevere. Do not degenerate from what you are, nor suffer the keen eye of your mind to grow dark and rusty, end of quote. And I think that that's great advice for us as Catholics as well. And you're listening to The Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. Great stories about great saints today, talking about the life of St. Edmund Campion right now. It's this idea that, yeah, we, we have to keep studying, we have to keep learning. For us, studying essentially means reading, learning about the faith as best we can, Keep our mind on the prize, the upward call to heaven in Christ Jesus, as St. Paul talked about. Strive for that, that glory crown that we're just going to lay at his feet. And persevere, and persevere. And, and don't let the, the eye of faith, the internal eye, the inner eye, grow dark and rusty. We've got to keep exercising that eye of faith, the, the faith muscle, if you will. And so he, he was just really uh, an absolute legend on the campus of Oxford University, you know, very well-dressed, knew all these different languages, Latin, French, you name it. He, would just, he would just, was just an absolute standout. However, however, because he, was so, he had such an inquiring mind, he kept reading about church history as well because it really intrigued him. I always say that the most dangerous men in the history of Christianity are the early fathers of the church, the apostolic fathers of the Catholic church. Because when you read these guys, the successors of the apostles in the first few centuries, you, you, you easily come to see that the early church was Catholic. Uh, the Protestant idea that the church fell apart, that the true faith disappeared from the earth after the, the time of the apostles, not the case at all. We see that the early church was, in fact, very, very Catholic. They believed in the reality of the Eucharist, among other doctrines, the papacy. And so Campion was reading about all this, and, and he was very convicted by it. He's like, you know, maybe I should really think about going back to the Catholic Church. And he was asked, actually, to engage in all these debates. And they were really, this was serious business. Um, the Catholic-Protestant debate was, was very, very... Um, I'd say hotly debated and hot-headedly debated because it, it was truly a matter of life and death for people. And he was asked, can you, can you please engage in these debates and debate Catholics and, and show why the Anglican faith is right? He was like, yeah, you know, I've, my schedule's kind of busy. And, you know, he kind of weasels way out of it. And he winds up going to Ireland. 
and he kind of hangs out there for a little while. But even in Ireland, he saw that there was a growing anti-Catholicism in the culture, and things were changing really, really fast. There was a lot of unrest in Scotland. Uh, the Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, of course, um, was uh, was a notable figure. Uh, obviously, James Bond has Catholic Scottish roots too, apparently. But in 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 fifteen seventy. This was a case where the Pope actually kind of made things worse. There was a papal bull that was issued excommunicating Queen Elizabeth I. And basically this papal bull said that none of her subjects have to be obedient to her anymore. Well, this just threw gasoline on the anti-Catholic fire in England and in all the United Kingdom. And uh, Catholic persecution just absolutely intensified. Priests were now called traitors any Catholic was essentially seen as an agent of Rome. Nobody trusted them. And the, the Pope was essentially trying to rein in England, which, of course, had been Catholic for centuries. But it didn't work. It totally backfired. So Campion as well came under some suspicion because people thought, you know, maybe this guy is like secretly wanting to be Catholic. And so he, he kind of has to, to run away and he eventually winds up going to Europe. And he winds up at the Seminary of Douai in France. And you've heard of the Douai Rhymes translation of the Bible. Well, he was welcomed there with open arms. And, and he, he found it to be an interesting kind of, of place to be. Because when he was at Oxford, it was all about intellectual learning. And in fact, one of the times when he was there, uh, the second time he got to speak to a queen, and it wouldn't be the last, Elizabeth I came to Oxford, and he was chosen to address her. And he had just a, a, a great line. It was, it was unbelievable. He said, I am speaking in the name of philosophy, the princess of letters before Elizabeth, the lettered princess. I like that. That was uh, very well done. So he, when he went to Douai, he was in the seminary there, and he, he started thinking more about the contemplative life. And he's like, you know, I tried to be the perfect scholar at Oxford, but I, I really wasn't focusing on spiritual depth. So he started to, to really think about this concept of abandoning himself abandoning all earthly pleasures, laying down his will for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so he winds up con confessing his sins uh, because he kind of had this nominal Catholic background. It was pretty simple for him. He simply had to go to confession, get back in God's grace, receive the Eucharist again. And he did, and it transformed his life. It was like he was born again, uh, really. And, and this happens to us, of course, in baptism. But he was reborn and he goes to Rome. He made a pilgrimage in 1573 to Rome. And he was thinking, he was really discerning whether or not he should become a Jesuit priest. And he was like, yeah, I don't know if this is my will or God's will, but I really want to pray about this. What better place to go than the heart of the church in Rome? And so when he gets to Rome, he, he, he just was blown away by the eternal city because of not only the history of Rome and, and the fall of the Roman Empire, all that really kind of got to him, but even though Rome eventually fell, the church remained. He wrote to his friend Gregory Martin. He said, make the most of Rome. Do you see the dead corpse of that imperial city? What can be glorious in life if such wealth and beauty has come to nothing? But who has stood firm in these wretched changes? What survives? The relics of the saints and the chair of the fishermen. And of course, by that, he means the chair of Peter. Uh, in Rome. And so, despite the fact that, that the empire no longer exists, the church still does, despite everything. So he does enter the Society of Jesus as a novitiate, as a novitiate and he goes through the exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola in, in a period of silence, and then he goes to Moravia, and he lives the life of community, and, and he absolutely loves it, these uh, Jesuit novitiates, and this brotherhood that he found was, was one of the highlights of his life, and later on he wrote uh, this, uh, remembering those times, he said, quote, How could I help taking fire at the remembrance of that house where we lived? There were so many burning souls, fiery of mind, fiery of body, fiery of word, with the flame which God came upon earth to send, that it should burn there always. Oh, dear walls that once enclosed me in your company, pleasant recreation room where we talked so holily. <laughs> Glorious kitchen where the best of friends fight for the pots. You know, who gets to wash the pots in holy humility and charity unfeigned? How often do I picture it 
one returning with his uh, load from the farm, another from the market, one sweating, sturdy and merry under a sack of refuse, another toiling along on some other errand. Believe me, my dearest brothers, your dust and brooms, the chaff is beheld with joy by the angels. Would that I have never that I had never known any father but the fathers of the Society of Jesus, no brothers but yourself and my other brothers, no business but that of obedience, no knowledge but Christ crucified. End of quote. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Great stories about great saints here on All Saints Day 2023. We're talking about St. Edmund Campion. Well, <clears throat> on September the 8th, the birthday of the Blessed Virgin Mary in 1578, he was ordained. He said his very first Mass as a priest of the Society of Jesus. He went to Prague. Um, he just loved doing what he was doing, scholarly pursuits, preaching, offering the Mass, spiritual direction. He was writing. He was teaching. And he kept in, in touch with a lot of his former students in England uh, through letters. And he had the, uh, well... He, he, he just was, it just suited him so well, this new life, but his peace was about to be shattered because he got a letter from his Jesuit superior. And again, this business of obedience that he talked about, he was ordered to go back to his native land of England to minister to the persecuted Catholics there, kind of as a missionary. And he knew that this was essentially a suicide mission. This was a death sentence. The penalty for being a Catholic priest in England was execution. So he, he has to become a secret agent. He has to become an undercover priest of Jesus Christ. And he had a vision at this time, kind of a mystical experience. And in this vision, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to him and told him that he would die a martyr's death in England. And another priest that, that was there also had the same dream. And he actually kind of wrote on his wall, his kind of a graffiti, if you will. He wrote on the wall of Campion's room in Prague, Edmundus Campianus, martyr. Edmund Campion, martyr. In Latin, of course. So he went back to England in 1580, and he had to disguise himself. Um, he didn't do such a great job being a secret agent at first. He, he said, well, I'm a jewel merchant. Um, it's kind of interesting that he was a jewel merchant, or pretending to be, because one of the nicknames for Edmund Campion was the Diamond of England, even when he was a scholar. Uh, before he re-entered the Catholic Church, he was called the Diamond of England. So he said, "Okay, I got to. I, I need a. I need a cover here. So I, I, I can't say I'm Edmund Campion. So I'm going to say I'm Mister Edmonds. I don't know. <laughs> he was pretty smart. I think he could have came up with something better than that. But at any rate, um, he had a friend uh, named Ralph Emerson who was a, a lay companion, a lay brother of the Jesuits, and he hung out with him. He was kind of uh, pretending to be his servant." And they would travel across the country, allegedly selling jewelry, but really what they were doing was they had far more precious cargo. They had the Eucharist, and they would administer the sacraments, keep the faith alive in Oxfordshire, Berkshire, Lancashire, all over the place. And it's, word got out that he was back in England, and there was an extreme manhunt that took place. The, the authorities were after him. There's all kinds of rumors about the Jesuits that they were going to try to assassinate the queen, overthrow the government, all kinds of stuff. And Father Campion had a lot of close calls. One was kind of funny. He was teaching catechism uh, to a servant girl uh, in the garden. It was it was a Catholic home, and he was trying to teach this young girl a catechism. And all of a sudden, the authorities showed up at the house, and the girl was thinking really quickly. She pushed him into a duck pond, which was super muddy and nasty. And he just had to lay in the water. He was covered in mud. The guards didn't see him. He got away. Uh, this is a guy who used to dress to the nines. Well, I'm sure he didn't like being covered in mud. But as funny as that is, uh, there was nothing funny about the fact that the, the noose was starting to tighten. And the net was starting to uh, tighten around him as well, close in on him. And he realized he wouldn't be able to escape forever. He wrote a letter. And he wrote this letter defending the Catholic faith, and he said, don't open this letter unless I'm captured. So he gave it to somebody to take care of it. But this person opened the letter, and then he said, this is amazing stuff. It was, and it came to be known as Campion's Brag. It was a defense of the Catholic faith. And he, um, he wound up, um, this person opened the letter and, and basically like 
not that they have photocopiers, but he basically copied this thing and spread this thing all over the place. And that, that made things even more dangerous for Edmund Campion. People knew he was out there and they started looking for him even more. He also wrote on another, he also wrote another apologetics pamphlet called The Ten Reasons, the Decim Rationes. Again, using just pure logic to, to show that the Catholic Church is the church that Jesus founded and the Catholic faith is true. At any rate, um, George Eliot, there's this guy named George Eliot, not the poet George Eliot, but uh, this guy was basically a criminal. He had, he had attacked a teenage girl at one point, and the authorities, the government, recruited him to be a spy to infiltrate Catholic circles and try to track down Edmund Campion. So he got into a secret mass where Campion was celebrating mass, and he actually received communion from uh, St. Edmund Campion. And tragically, the, and very ironically, the homily that he preached that day was on the betrayal of Jesus in Jerusalem uh, by people like Judas, who, who he thought uh, loved him the most at any rate. He tried to hide in one of these priest holes, but eventually the authorities showed up, and, and Campion didn't want the, the owners of the house to be tortured, so he surrendered himself. And he was captured, and the guards were actually pretty nice to him at first. They actually took him to a pub, uh, a local tavern on the way to prison, and George Eliot, the, the spy, the betrayer, was there. And he, Campion was actually joking around with, with the police officers, and they are kind of drinking some pints, and Eliot, George Eliot, said, Mr. Campion, you look cheerfully here upon everyone but me. I know you're angry at me for betraying you. And Campion was. He was absolutely livid. And he turned to him and he said this. this and this, this is really the greatness of his soul and how he's concerned for this guy's eternal soul, even though he, he was betraying him to death. He said, God forgive you, Eliot, for judging me. I forgive you. And in fact, as a token of my forgiveness, I'm going to drink to you. So he raised up his pint. And he said, if you repent and go to confession with me, I will absolve you. But I'm going to give you a pretty large penance, that, that's for sure. Well, he never did. He never did. And he was put on trial. He was tortured. He was starved in many ways. He was so weak. And then he was forced to debate all these Anglican clergymen. But even though he was weak, he had no notes. He wasn't allowed to have his Bible or any notes with him. He easily trounced these guys in public debates. It was actually kind of embarrassing for them. And... um he just had an incredible uh, testimony on trial. Uh, this is what he, what he said uh, before he was condemned to death. He said, The only thing that we have now to say is that if our religion does make us traitors, we are worthy to be condemned, but otherwise we are and have been as good a subjects as the queen ever had. In condemning us as Catholics, you condemn all your own ancestors, all the ancient priests, the bishops, the kings, all that once was the glory of England, the island of saints, and the most devoted child of the See of Peter. Well, Campion and his companions were sentenced to the gruesome torture. Now, say Thomas More, because he was such a known public figure, he got the, the grace, if you will, being beheaded, but not Campion. He was hanged, drawn, and quartered. But just before this happened, before he went to his death, Campion was visited once again by the man who had betrayed him, George Eliot. And Eliot said, listen, um, I think I did the wrong thing here. And, and Campion said, look, I I'm telling you, go to confession, do penance, confess this for your own salvation. And by the way, I know somebody who you can hide out with if you want to save your own skin, if you come back into the Catholic Church. And he never did. George Eliot never did. He never did confess what he had done. He never did return to the faith. But somebody overheard this. The jailer himself, the guy who was um, had the keys to the prison, if you will, he actually overheard this conversation. And this guy was like, he was blown away that Campion would, would forgive the guy who betrayed him, his Judas, if you will. And this guy said, man, this, there's something to this Catholic faith. He started studying it himself, and the jailer himself converted not long afterwards. And so the day of his execution was December the, the 1st in 1581. It was a rainy day in London. There was mud all over the streets. And he was taken out of the Tower of London. And Campion said to all the crowd, God save you all, gentlemen. God bless you and make you good Catholics. And he was dragged to the place of execution at Tyburn, the famous Tyburn tree, the dreaded Tyburn tree. The crowds were jeering at him, spitting at him. And he saw 
in the niche of Newgate Arch, there was a statue of Our Lady. And he remembered the prophecy. He remembered the vision of Our Lady that had appeared to him so long ago that he would be a martyr in England. And it was actually coming to pass. And so when he was on the scaffold, he, he was people would, would shout at him, confess your treason. And he said, I'm a Catholic man and a priest. In that faith I have lived and in that faith I intend to die. If you esteem my religion as treason, then I am guilty. As for any other treason, I never committed any, as God is my judge. And then, of course, the hangman's noose tightened. He was half suffocated, and then he was taken down while he was still alive. Uh, they disemboweled him, pulled out his entrails uh, before him. It, it's just such a gruesome, gruesome martyrdom to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. And there was a young man in the crowd, a young Cambridge student, an amateur poet. His name was Henry Walpole. And as they were killing Campion, and he was there just sort of to see the spectacle, some of the blood of the saint spattered on his coat. And in that moment, God got a hold of him, and he was shocked into faith. Henry Walpole was, was raised as a nominal Catholic himself, just as Campion had been. And in that moment, he absolutely turned his life over to Jesus Christ. And he, too, became a martyr. He became a Jesuit and a martyr for the faith in England as well. And he wrote a poem about this, Henry Walpole. He said, You thought perhaps when the learned Campion dies, his pen must cease, his sugared tongue be still, but you forgot how loud his death it cries, how far beyond the sound of tongue and quill, you did not know how rare and great a good it was to write his precious gifts in blood. St. Edmund Campion, pray for us. I'm Cale Clark. Thanks for joining me today for great stories about great saints on The Cale Clark Show. My thanks also to Cardinal Thomas Collins, who joined me early in the program. Stay tuned to Relevant Radio for more great stories about great saints. God bless you.